Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology.
right, Devin. So I'm on the air. This is Greg Walker. I think that uh, you're having some issues, and I think that I'm the only one that's on the air right now. So I can uh, give a quick rundown on the purpose for this interview while you're uh, trying to sort things out over there. Um, Devin has asked for me to talk about the upcoming Truth Festival. Devin and I have done some evangelism at uh, Belmont here in North Carolina. They've been having pagan pride festivals the past few years. And I met Devin in school, and we both have a heart for evangelism. And so we decided um, to go down to the pagan pride festival and actually do some evangelism, to engage and ask some good questions, to try to knock down some intellectual or emotional barriers to get uh, the good news, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to some of these 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 guys who are lost in really bad ideas. And um, a few of us, while we were there, were noticing, you know, there are actually more Christians here than pagans, and we need to actually, why aren't Christians having a, a festival like this? We need to get together and actually celebrate Jesus Christ. Out of all the people in the world, Christians surely have the reason to celebrate their life in Jesus Christ. And so we decided to lay it before the Lord, and a bunch of us got the green light. And so we are hosting the true, the first Truth Festival in Belmont, North Carolina, Saturday, May 30th. It'll be from 11 a.m. until 8.30 p.m. And we have speakers from all over, um, multiple different missions organizations that are serving all over the world. We have a representative from Voice of Martyrs coming to talk. We have Elam, who primarily does work in Iran. They're, they're bringing in a, uh, a a pastor from Iran that's been persecuted to speak about what persecution looks like today in, in Iran. We have JARS, Weekless. Um, we have SIM, the international director, is going to come and uh, speak and so, very exciting stuff. And then on top of that, we're going to uh, strategically place apologetic topical booths um, all over the park so we can uh, gently and respectfully answer some of the, the questions and objections that naturally come in uh, to, towards the Christian faith. Is that you, Devin? You there? I, I am. Sorry about that, folks. We definitely <laughs> had some, uh, some technical difficulties, but we uh, we got it squared away. So, yes, I, I heard you talking there uh, about the, uh, the Truth Festival. And uh, give us the dates on that again. Yeah, that is May 30th, which is uh, the, the Saturday after Memorial Day weekend from 11 a.m. until... Um, 8.30 p.m. That's yeah, Stowe Park in Belmont, North Carolina. I don't. I I didn't get to get to catch what was said at the at the beginning, so I don't know if I'm asking you to repeat yourself. But uh, tell the listeners the last time we went to Stowe Park, and what we were what we encountered and what we were doing there. Yeah, so it was really interesting because you had multiple different pagan groups coming together and talking and teaching and displaying their what they believe and these these diverse pagan rituals and beliefs and uh, we really found it interesting because they 
a lot of them did not agree with one another and contradicted each other and their teachings and, and their version of whatever pagan belief system that they were subscribing to. But uh, we, we got to engage and, and just ask, you know, ask the right questions. And it's, it's you know, really ultimately our goal as, as Christians is to go out and, and make disciples. And part of that process is getting that gospel presentation out there and that for people to actually be able to listen it sometimes requires gently and respectfully knocking down either the intellectual or emotional barriers that they like to to throw up. Um, but as yeah. trained apologists, we have to fight the urge to, to cut their ears off, kind of like um, Peter did when the, the, the guards came to arrest Jesus. We can very easily take an argument and cut someone's ear off to where they can't even listen. And so I always like, I always appreciate going out and doing ministry with you, Devin, because you're you're real gentle and you're very knowledgeable and you really have a heart to to spread the gospel. Well, I appreciate that very very much. So, you know, I was, I was thinking, you know, a lot of the a lot of the objections that we get from doing apologetics, it's the the objections I've encountered a lot of times comes from other Christians. And uh, you know, me and the Melissa recently went to the uh, atheist uh, convention here, and in, in, uh, it was in North Carolina, Hickory, North Carolina, called ReasonCon, and uh, it was it was anything but reasonable, just to be honest, folks. It was um, at least the talks I heard. There was nothing. Uh, there was no academic type of talk. It was it was mockery. It was just um, it was really. It was pathetic. I thought, you know, had I spent, I mean, there were people that <laughs> drove there from Virginia and other places, and I thought, you know, had I drove, if I spent the money to drive to this, I would be sorely disappointed. Uh, you know, granted, they didn't have maybe the biggest guns there, but um, why should we do apologetics, Greg, for the Christian that says, you know, we just, uh, we just got there and preached the gospel? That's 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 how we do. We just preach the gospel, and that's how God saves. We don't need to engage in in apologetics. Well, apolog- we have we need to do apologetics because defending the faith is is a command. I mean, First Peter three fifteen is pretty clear, and then you even see um, qualifications for the elders and, and the church is to refute those who oppose sound doctrines. You see. Jesus' half-brother Jude, in Jude verses 3 and 4, he's, he's shifting the intent of his letter and urging fellow Jewish believers to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And then I believe all of the New Testament authors warned and wrote about false teachers. And so, and then, you know, you go to Revelation, you get the seven letters to the seven churches, and it's basically the Lord giving a report card to John on all these churches. Here's what you're doing good. Here's what you're doing bad. Some are all bad. Some are all, some are all good. And so it's, it's, it's really, really important that we realize that, you know, we're not of the world, but the world is going to try to influence the church. And so, we need to also realize that I think a big part of spiritual warfare is a battle of ideas and that it, mm. it happens actually in the mind. 
And so as right. Christians, it, it's important that we put on our armor, that we know where we stand. We know that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world, First John 4, 4. And that, that we go out prepared and equipped to see these bad ideas, to think critically, to gently knock down intellectual or emotional barriers and actually deliver the message that has the power as we as we see in uh, Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so right. it, it is the power. It's, it, that's it. And so, but we're, we are contending with the world. And we're occupied basically, as Christians, we're occupied in enemy territory, called to love the enemy and to be lights. And right now we're in a culture where the our nation is distancing from Christian principles and values. And so okay. what we're seeing is the culture influencing the church. And so that, that makes it even harder, especially for, for a Christian that, that wants to take the faith seriously and, and wants to defend the faith. We have to not only contend um, from skeptics and from nonbelievers, but we need to contend uh, against those who are Christian but are Deeping into error or into apostasy, and uh, so yeah, I mean, importantly to get the gospel out, we want to be able to defend the faith and have a good reason for what we believe. We don't have blind faith, but we also need to stand up boldly for truth. And and uh, as Christians, you know that that's it's it's a, the truth is most essential in our lives. Right, absolutely is absolutely. Let me uh, let me ask you you this. Um, what are what do you think are some practical ways uh, that maybe the church, local church, could get involved uh, in training people to be able to uh, answer some of these objections, to be able to you know equip them to go out and do things like the Truth Festival or the atheist conventions or pagan festivals. I think a lot of times when we when you ask people why they why they really don't share their faith, most of the time I found out is because they just don't feel equipped. So maybe what are some what are some practical ways the church can help equip uh, their parishioners to be able to engage and be confident when they evangelize? Well, I think one of the the first things that needs to happen is we need to teach people that the Bible's authority. And um, that, that if, we, if we fix our interpretation principles to, to take God more seriously, then I think that will ultimately affect um, our, our motivation for wanting to, to defend the faith. And so First uh, Timothy 3.16 is very clear. All Scripture is breathed out by God for training in righteousness. And so right off the bat, we know that the Bible's authority. And I think the problem in the church today is we've adopted these subjective interpretation principles and methods to basically accommodate how, where culture is going and, and norms or pressure that's coming from culture. And so that needs to be addressed. And we also, I think a good, a good, uh, a good method for the church is to seek out those who are trained in apologetics and to implement teaching, to implement actually going out and doing evangelism with them, to implement um, 
going to the public square and just having dialogue. I think too much of us are just comfortable and sitting back and just allowing um, the, 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 the direction our culture is going to just affect us and, and the church. And so it, it's a real challenge, but I, I think that uh, what we can do on top of all this is we can also start having more unity on our, on our mind. And so we have presuppositional apologists. We have classical apologists. We have all these different apologetic systems and all these different theological camps and bends and denominational differences. And I think what we need to realize is uh, Paul's pretty clear in in Romans 14 that, uh, you know, when it comes to secondary theological issues, um, we basically, I think what he's arguing here is that we need to be fully convinced in our own mind and not argue over doubtable things. And so we need to know what the majors are and defend them, and we need to identify the minor things and decide, you know what, let's extend grace. These guys, they're um, a cappella only, and they they believe that instruments aren't allowed in the church. You know what, they're fully convinced in their own mind, and they, they do it unto the Lord, and at the end of the day, they will either stand or fall before the Lord. But before the Lord, if they're, if they're on a secondary issue, if they're fully convinced and they're doing it unto him, I believe they'll stand. And so I think that we need to really break through some of these secondary theological differences that are continuing to divide us, unite in a defense for our core Christian essential doctrines, and actually equip each other, train each other, edify each other, and just be a more united church. And it as as our nation does distance from Christian principles and values, the one, those who are in error and want to continue heading that direction will it'll be there'll be more of a stark difference between them and, and Christians that, that want to take God seriously. And so I think that we can look in history and see um, persecution and, and how as nations distance from God, there's, there's the stark contrasts are, are obvious. And so it'll it'll be clear who who the solid evangelical churches are and who are not. And uh, and so yeah, I, to go back to your question, I think we need to take the Bible more serious. I think we need to find those who are trained in apologetics and actually invite them into our church and allow for training. I think we need to actually go out and do evangelism and and have dialogue and ask ourselves when we hear bad rhetoric, is that true? What is true? You know, Pilate's question to Jesus, he's looking at truth incarnate. What is truth? At the end of the day, what is true? And there there are plenty who are trained to think critically, to see beyond the bad rhetoric and to gracefully, respectfully lovingly give credible answers for the historic Christian faith. And so ways you can do that, Ratio Christi. There's Ratio Christi chapters all over the country. I think there's over 300 now, it's, which is an apologetics um, ministry in universities. You have TEAM, which is the missions arm of Southern Evangelical Seminary. There's other seminaries like Veritas in California, Biola. So, I would just do research and find guys who are training apologetics, invite them into the church, or go go to them and ask them, who should I read? 
because we see that you go in Barnes and Nobles and you go to the Christian section, graceful. There's some solid stuff in there, but you really need to know what you're doing. You really need to know who the people are. And so for the average Christian, it's it's really easy to pick up something that would just veer you completely into a bad theology or, uh, you know, a prosperity-type gospel or um, whatever. And so ask these guys, what should we be reading? Can you come and train us? Do you have any video videos or any type of content that you can send us? And, and then I would also add that you need to do evangelism training. You know, when I go out and do – when we do evangelism – um, I often meet Christians, and I'll ask them, how do I get saved? And I, it's, it's amazing to me how many actually struggle to articulate the gospel. And so I think we need to implement training and just how to give the gospel. What is the, what is the gospel? And so I, all, there's a, you know, they're, they're saved, but they, it's just they're not given the gospel. And so they don't have it on their mind, they haven't practiced, they, they're not doing it, and so they, they just they fumble through it. And so, sorry, that was kind of a long answer. Are you there? All right, Devin, I guess you're not there. So, I guess I can... Uh, keep going here so for those that want to check out the truth festival you can go to truthfestival.org or you can go to our ministry website which is globalcross.co globalcross.co and uh, you can get more information about it there and um, if any of you are out there and you want someone to come and, and teach you some apologetics or take you out to do some evangelism Definitely contact Devin Palou, or you can contact myself, Greg Walker. Um, you, can, you can contact me through the Global Cross website. Um, Devin, are you back? movement and so we would like to replicate this and um, so if you'd like to have a Christian festival in your area where we integrate apologetics and have answers uh, for people's typical questions and objections um, contact us at truthfestival.org and think about possibly having a festival in your area and then of course if you want to come to the one that we're having in Belmont, it will be at the Stowe Park, Belmont, North Carolina, May 30th, which is the weekend after Memorial Day weekend. So, Devin, are you back? I can hear you.
right, Devin. Well, I'll give you a couple more minutes here. And if I don't hear from you, I'm going to have to let you go. But uh, your service, I appreciate your show, um, and I appreciate your heart to go out and to defend the historic Christian faith. And I know. The gospel. All right, I hear you, Devin. I hear you. Hey, Greg, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, I'm, I don't know what... I can hear you. <laughs> I don't know what the deal is. I can't, uh, I can't, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> I'm trying to see how this thing works, and it's kind of throwing me off. Our computer broke uh, the other day. Well, and so I, uh, to... the one thing you don't want on the radio is uh, dead air, so hopefully I uh, <laughs> filled in some of it for you. Yeah, that's, that is good. Uh, I appreciate you, <laughs> you coming on, man, and... Um, I'm trying to to I'm gonna try and have my wife maybe um, can you pull up the laptop and see if we can get on the studio and uh, figure it out. But Greg, I appreciate you, man. Uh, we're looking forward to getting out there and doing some some ministry with you, and uh, we shall see what happens, my friend. Look forward to to All getting right. together with you. God bless, man. God bless you. Take care, brother. Bye-bye. All right, Bye-bye. folks, stand by for a few minutes, and we're going to try and work these problems out. Uh, I know you're probably online, Andrew, so just hold on a, a couple minutes, and we're going to try and, and get this thing going. So hold on one minute, and uh, we'll be back in just a few seconds. All right, folks, we are back. We've had some technical issues, and I want to first and foremost apologize to our guest, Greg Walker, who pretty much, uh, uh, this is his first time on the show, and yet he pretty much hosted the show for the first half. So my apologies about that. Uh, Secondly, I want to uh, apologize to my guest, Andrew Rappaport. Uh, He was supposed to come on about 640 and uh, or 6:30, I'm sorry, and so we're about 10 minutes late. So hopefully we can do some editing on this show and still get it up. Uh, but right at this moment, I'm going to go ahead and bring Andrew on right now, and we are going to go ahead and continue with this with this interview. So Andrew, are you there, my friend? Yes, brother. How are you? Oh well, I'm I'm missing a few hairs. <laughs> Folks, so hair just, out, just, just relax. Take take a deep breath. Relax. There you go. I am trying. One of technology, it never works. 
<laughs> yeah, especially when you need it, right? Or maybe that's rule number two. <laughs> but uh, Andrew, let's uh, let's jump into this, my friend. Uh, I'm not able to have kind of the information for the show that I was wanting to have. I, I might be able to pull that up real quick, though, just so I can kind of give you an introduction. But uh, tell us tell us a little bit about kind of your family and and. Uh, in fact, hold hold on one second here. I'm I'm, I'm going to pull up your your I can tell uh, how we how we first information met. here before I can. Yes. All right. So I know you you uh, started the ministry striving for eternity, and uh, I'm not sure what what seminary did you go to? What did you? I went to, go to Calvary Baptist Theological Seminary. It's in it was in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Great. And you you studied there? I hope so. I even passed. With, uh, <laughs> I should have probably asked in a bit in more of a question. <laughs> what did you study there? Uh, my basically, I got my master's work in theology. Nice. So that is good, and that's going to qualify you to go over this book. That uh, I know you just you've written this book, and you sent it to me, and. We wanted to, to do a little bit of show on this. It's called What Do They Believe? A Systematic Theology of the Major Western Religions. And I'm looking forward to to uh to diving into this. Tell us a little bit about your wife, your kids, your family. Uh well, I got uh two adult children. They're out in, in college, so I'm a poor man. And uh and anyone who's paying for kids in college understands that very well. Um, but uh, it's it's great to see uh, uh, my kids starting to, to mature in their own in their own walks, and uh, you know seeing that the instructions you give to them, and now they're responsible for it. It's kind of you, you have fear and trepidation, and yet at the same time you. There's nothing you can do but sit back and watch sometimes, but it's it's a, a great time of life. My wife and I are trying to get used to being empty nesters and uh, have a nice quiet house to ourselves. Uh, so, although they're they're back for the summer and we're getting used to the noise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess a bliss only lasts for a little bit there, but that's okay. <laughs> I know you guys are happy to get them back and and you love your kids. Yep. So. How did we meet, uh, uh, Andrew? I know it's kind of an interesting, interesting story. We met online. Yeah, you, you, you and I met first online. Uh, there was an individual who took some theological position, um, and I was trying to just say, hey, look, the you know, Bible isn't really clear on this. We can't say that one way or the other. And the, the person, this woman started, Calling me all kinds of names, saying that I was a cruel, uh, cruel counselor because I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the position she wanted to hold to. And uh, you, you came to my defense, and we were trying to reason with her, and just, you know, we're just saying, look, you know, it's just that the, the scripture doesn't really say one way or the other, and we don't want to be in a position of saying God says when we're not sure. And uh, and so we had kind of become friends on Facebook that way, and then. Um, we had a mutual friend, and I came down to uh, down to your area for the wedding uh, of you know my mutual friend, my friend 
who was marrying a friend of yours, and um, and we were sitting right next to one another at the wedding table. <laughs> and sure enough, you give me your name, and uh, that sounds familiar. We started talking, and we're like, that's right. <laughs> and we remembered the conversation on Facebook, and and basically we just hit it off. I, I, you know, everyone else was walking around doing whatever, and you and I and your wife were just kind of hanging out and talking for a while, and, you know. It was a great time. It was a good time. Yeah, had a had a had a good time. Good conversation there. That's kinda of how we got to know each other and see each other's passions and uh and that. So now you, you do a lot of ministry with some, some kind of the popular level uh apologists, guys like uh, Matt Slick who runs CARM and I think every apologist I have ever talked to has cut their teeth on CARM's website. I mean, Matt Slick has just done such a great job with the articles. And, um, you know, when I first got saved, especially when, when the Lord first saved me, um, I listened to probably every single uh, episode of, of CARM Radio. And I uh, still have it on my apps today and still listen today and uh, just in, enjoy the, the heck out of them. Yeah, me and my wife got to meet him a while back at, uh, at one of the apologetics conferences and he remembers us because he says uh yeah your wife's the one with the the pretty smile and you're the you were the dorky looking guy and so my wife <laughs> she still revels in that <laughs> but uh oh, yeah, yeah you, you, you do some work you know, with and, uh, the bible thumping wingnut and and that is that correct yeah yeah a good way to uh if you want to get to to meet the folks that want to meet both matt and i I would suggest if you go to uh, CARM's website, they have the, the link. I don't have it on ours yet. But uh, if you go to CARM's website, they, we're doing an apologetics cruise with uh, MRM. MRM is a Mormon research ministry. They're the ones that are really kind of doing a lot of the legwork on it. Um, Bill McKeever. That, uh, yep. And uh, that's, I mean, a lot of sessions that they got planned out. Uh, on topics and all for for the conference, it's going to be a cruise where we are going to have a, an apologetics conference. Uh, a lot of the speakers from MRN and Matt Slick and myself, and, uh, and I don't even know who else, but uh, I, I personally think that we're going to talk Matt and I the issue of baptism. You know, on a boat, lots of water around us. We'll talk about the proper mode of baptism <laughs> immersion, and uh, we'll throw go. him overboard and ask him if that's enough water for him now. <laughs> But, Talk so a little actually, bit about. Uh, um, I was just say, that's one of the things uh, Bible Something Wingnut show. Uh, Matt and I go back and forth yeah. on. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, talk a little bit about that show and where, because uh, I know you and you and Matt sometimes are on that show. So, uh, kind of an opportunity maybe for for listeners to uh, hear you guys a little more. Where where can they find yeah. your episodes at and when you're on well, that? But. Bible Something Wing Nut is a it's, – it's two guys, uh, Tim Hurd and Len Pettis, who are just regular guys. They're both truck drivers, uh, although Len has a different job now. But they're just regular guys that like talking about things of, of God. And they started a, a podcast called Bible Something Wing Nut. Uh, it was actually a YouTube channel that they named it that and got all kinds of atheists. I mean, they, they thought they were going to create this channel to, to hang out with other Christian brothers and talk. And they discovered that, you know, all these professing atheists were coming out of the woodworks to challenge them, and, and they had all kinds of opportunities. And um, but every Sunday night they do a Google Hangout with Matt Slick, and um, 
I, I have church, so I come in kind of late, you know, most of the time, and uh, I'm usually there after we go off the air live. <laughs> but uh, and every once in a while, I'll be on their regular podcast that they do, <clears throat> and uh, so they have a podcast, and then they also have a Google Hangout. But two guys just talking talking scripture, and uh, it's an encouragement to a lot of people to realize that. I think some people think you have to be seminary trained to be able to talk scripture and be on the air and things like that. And here they see these two guys that have their podcast, and it's like, wow, you know, this is encouraging to know we can we can dive into scripture and look at these things. So, uh, absolutely, I think a lot of people are encouraged by that. Absolutely. Well, I I appreciate uh, both you and and Matt, and maybe someday I'll get him on the show. If I ever get big enough, you know, if I ever blow up enough and get him on the show. But right now, uh, I guess that kind of sounds like an insult to you. <laughs> oh, man. You haven't had that you know, on You're going to get me on Facebook for that one. I know you. <laughs> oh, no. I'm, uh, I'm just playing with you. But uh, it let's, clear let's that jump I, into this book. That you, oh. I have to get Matt on your show. That's that's the solution. So I'll, there you go. I'll get. I'll set we that could, up. Uh, you know, we could. Uh, we we've hosted several debates on theology matters. So maybe we can do the, your baptism debate. <laughs> Work that out, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's let's look at your at your book. And, and again, folks, the name of the book is called "What Do They Believe: A Systematic Theology of the Major." Western religions, and uh, they can get this on Amazon. Is that correct? Uh, I, it, it's getting on Amazon. So the publisher had issues with Amazon had to get me to sign off that they had the rights to to uh, post it there. So and then they have like a two or three day period. So it, it's not up there as of the the live of this this show, but it should be there um, soon. They can get it. Uh, they can order it at um, strivingforeternity.org uh, for fifteen dollars. It's also on karm.org. They have it on their their site. Um, uh, One million tracks.com has it. It'll be on. Uh, it will be on Amazon. It'll also be on Amazon Kindle, and it's going to come out on Kindle for on sale for. Uh, I think it's going to be on sale for dollar ninety nine. And it comes out on Kindle, and then it'll go back up to uh, it'll or it'll go up to four ninety nine. So, but I'm I'm not sure when Melissa, those are gonna the Kindles coming out. Melissa is here actually sitting here with me, and she wanted to uh, she's gonna kind of help me run the interview. But she wanted to ask you about your ministry, uh, striving for eternity. Go, go ahead, Melissa. Yeah, right yeah. Can you tell people? I know that you all do a lot of evangelism, and that uh, evangelism is a big part of our hearts and, and a huge part of our ministry. So um, could you maybe let us know what Shaman for Eternity, what the purpose is of the ministry and what you guys yeah. are all about? So Striving for Eternity, um, it, it's a discipleship ministry. We start with evangelism. We just don't end with evangelism. But it started, the way the ministry started was that I saw a need of living in New Jersey by the boardwalk of, of seeing people, thousands of people that would come out to the beach to, to sin uh, and go to the bars and all. And, I, and we figured, let's see if we can get a lot of people out on a single day to evangelize to them. And we started an event called Jersey Fire, which has now spread. 
uh, and there's an Ohio fire, and there's a NorCal fire in San Jose, and we're working on some others. And it basically is an event to, to a conference where we get people fired up to go out and warn the lost of the fire to come. And that's really how it, it, it pretty much started was just so that we could have that event. And when I was pastoring, I had uh, announced that I was going to be stepping down as pastor. And when I did that, uh, I started to get requests to come and speak at conferences and in churches. And Striving Fraternity became a speaking ministry as well. And so then it okay. to that. It's now morphed into where we do online training. We have a what's called the Striving Fraternity Academy. And we do weekly training. We're teaching through a systematic theology right now. Um, we are, we've gone through an uh, introduction to discipling. We've done one on hermeneutics. We're working on the, the next one, which will be on apologetics. And so we, okay. we're putting a series of classes okay. together. And okay. then, now we're also starting to do seminars. We do seminars, come in churches and, and do a seminar called uh, Bible Interpretation Made Easy, teaching people how to interpret the Bible. Great. And so most awesome. people... And I think you know me, you guys know me from some of my open air that I do. Um, uh-huh. I'm very much into evangelism. I do a lot uh-huh. of standing on street corners and sharing the gospel mm-hmm. with people, which your previous uh, call, previous uh, uh, person you were interviewing um, was, was discussing getting out there. Um, uh-huh. you know, Greg Walker, he was saying... It's it, you have to get out and actually do it, and mm. that is what trains people. Right, right. So I appreciate that. You know, you're very much evangelistically focused, but yet you're also focused on discipleship as well. Because, it's, like you said, it doesn't end. You know, when a person comes to Christ, there's a a lifetime of growth and and training and. Um, you know, encouragement and those sort of things that that goes along with that. So, what was the the, the um kind of the motivation behind you writing? What do they believe? And by the way, it's great to speak with you again because I know you and I have done some things regarding um like race relations and yeah. other things like that. So it's good to see you. And you and I have again. a similar interest that as as I've been, I'm on a, a, a board of a crisis pregnancy center, so. You and I have that. Right. The pro-life. Yeah, with the pro-life work. Yes, exactly. We have a lot of the same passions, yeah. Yeah. This this book started because I, I come from a Jewish background, and I would often be asked, what do Jewish people believe? How do, how do you evangelize to a Jewish person? And it's kind of sad, but I had, you know, 10 years of Hebrew school, and where I'd go several days during the week and on Sundays, and yet I really didn't know Judaism. And so I had to start studying myself to learn what it is that Judaism... So I, I actually learned more about Judaism as a Christian, Talmud, and things like that. But then after 9-11, many people were asking, what is Islam? They really right. didn't know. And I had one of the elders in our church that said, you, because of the way I study, he said, would you be able to do research and tell us what does Islam believe? And the reason he asked me is because I do original source. So I got, went and, and got a couple of different versions of the Quran, read through each one of them, started to systematize it, and I taught in the church in the Sunday school these doctrines that uh, what what's their their authority, their, you know, with their scriptures, 
What's their view of God, specifically the Trinity? What's their view of Jesus Christ, specifically his deity? What's their view of man, specifically his sinful nature? What's their view of salvation? And then what's their view of end times? So I laid it out that way. And I got done with that, and they said, you know, the elders said, hey, that was great. Can you do Judaism since you're Jewish? Okay, so I did that same format. Then it became a thing where, you know, I've done a lot of years of study in Jehovah Witness and Mormonism, so I finished that one out. And then I so well, since I'm going, I might as well do Catholicism. Uh, I then put a response to that of what Christians believe. I attempted to do it with Hinduism and Buddhism, but you can't really systematize them so well because they don't follow a, a system like that. So that made it kind of hard. So that's how it had come about. Um, and where you see it helpful, and I'm sure you guys go out you, you, with Rostio Christie, you're, you're engaging with people. You are you know, going into colleges and training people to be engaged with people. So you understand what it's like to, to have someone that you're engaging with, and, and they're going to tell you what you believe as a Christian. And maybe you've had the experience where someone describes you as a Christian, you're like, uh, no, we don't believe that. <laughs> and they immediately, when you're in this conversation like that, you immediately shut them down because you know they're not honestly representing what you believe. Um, I had this with a rabbi who wanted to convert me back to Judaism, and his description of Christianity was a mix between Mormonism and Catholicism, but it wasn't Christianity. And this guy was supposedly a well-known rabbi who knows the New Testament well. And to a bunch of rabbis who don't know the New Testament at all, he seems like he really knows it well. To a bunch of Christians who know the New Testament, he doesn't know it at all. (laughs) And that's what I didn't want to be guilty of. So what I wanted to do is write a book where I could say this is what these different groups believe. Here's from their source material, not what some other Christian says they believe, but almost all of this is from original source material. And it's going into the Talmud, going into the Quran, going into the Book of Mormon, quotes from there to say this is what they believe. It's not a refutation, but it's systematizing what they actually believe. So you can read this and say, you know, these verses teach this. Is this is this accurate in what you believe? And one of the things I did is I went to a cardinal in the Catholic Church. I went to an imam. I went to a rabbi. I said, "This is what I'm teaching. Is this is this accurate to what you believe?" And they they agreed. They said, "Yeah, it is." And so because I didn't want to be guilty of the very thing I w- was setting out to to put a stop to, right? I went and said, "Well, can, you know, is this accurate?" And what it does is it provides you with an overview in detail what they believe as a, as a religion, not trying to refute them, but trying to provide an understanding of where they're coming from. And, you know, you're not going to catch every, I mean, there's, there's many divisions within each of these religions, um, but you're going to catch the general sense of what the religion believes. Right. And I, I think one of the, you know, one of the, things that we want to do as apologists is we want to be uh, truthful. We want to have integrity. And so many times when we deal with, um, for example, when I, when I talk with Jehovah's Witnesses, um, I normally don't 
spend time going with, you know, blood transfusions and whether he died on a stake or a cross or nothing. I just go right to the kind of the, the, the meat of the issue, doctrine of the Trinity, uh, deity of Jesus Christ. And when you start mm-hmm. talking about the, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, of course they reject it. And, and what I've come to do is I just ask them, define for me what do you understand the doctrine of the Trinity to mean? And I've never heard one uh, be able to accurately give a give the correct definition that Christians would believe. And so what we don't want is to uh, have people uh, misrepresent our views and then reject our views based on misunderstanding. And as apologists, we don't want to do the same to other groups. We want to be, in, you know, have integrity and honesty, etc. And uh, I like your your you know with your book you. Uh, you're giving what they believe, and I think it's a it's a fair representation of what they believe. Of course, you know the chapters could you you could always add more, you could always you know do more stuff, but then of course you end up with a huge book, and that's you know not necessarily what the publishers want. So you know you can only you can only do what you can only do uh, at that time, and I, th- I think you've done a good job with that. So that being said, let's let's go ahead and jump into this. We've got. Uh, You've got about 60 minutes, and you got six chapters, so I figured let's uh, take a few minutes on each chapter. So talk to us a little bit about Judaism. I know you said you were you were Jewish, so I imagine, uh, did you grow up in a, in a Jewish home, or were you in, yeah, in a Jewish I, I, religion? Bar Mitzvah, and um, I, I had gone through uh, all the Hebrew school that you, you go through to, uh, to do Bar Mitzvah, and uh you know my my folks my parents are still you know still uh practicing Judaism uh, my my dad actually was raised orthodox so uh very very religious i i was uh what's called conservatism which is uh not as orthodox uh so we we would not be as religious as you'd see folks that would have the uh the yarmulkes or kippahs that they'd be wearing um and so a little bit more on the liberal side of them, but uh, but not uh, as liberal as maybe uh, my siblings and I would have liked to, to have a lot more time to, to ourselves than be in Hebrew school. But, you know, so, yeah, so you want to go through each, each, of the, uh, each of the different religions? Good stuff. That's, that's very good. So let's, let's look. One of the issues I uh, I know people like John Hagee and uh, certain groups can get really radical on their views of Judaism and Jewish people and um, can say some pretty ridiculous things. Talk to us a little bit about kind of uh, what the, what are the Jewish what is the Jewish view of God? Uh, obviously, we would say the scriptures of the Old Testament, but they also have. Um, traditions, et cetera, like that. Talk to us a little bit about what is the Jewish conception of God, uh, how does it relate to Christianity, what are their scriptures, and what is their view of, of heaven, hell, and afterlife? And also, uh, how are they how are they saved, how are they reconciled in, in Judaism with God? Okay. Yeah, and, and one thing I'll say this, when, when you're evangelizing to a Jewish person, but really the last thing you want to say is the name Jesus Christ. And people don't understand this, but you have to understand that Jewish people are raised to hate that name. Uh, 
we're, when I was in Hebrew school, we were we were raised to believe that Jesus Christ is Hitler's God. Um, Jesus Christ represents, to a Jewish mindset, the Spanish Inquisitions, the Crusades, the Holocaust. And so you really want someone to see their need for a Savior before you bring his name in, because it, it turns people off immediately. And, and it's, it's like the worst name uh, that you could say. But when it comes to, to Judaism, you have to understand they have really four different authorities. Now, most people would know they have the Old Testament, okay, uh, the, the written scripture, okay, what's called the Tanakh. And so we'd understand that aspect. But they have a mystical uh, – there's a commentary on the, the Tanakh, which is called the Midrash, very mystical. Uh, and then they have an oral law that they believe were given at the same time that the written law was given to Moses was this oral law called the Mishnah. And when you speak of, of, of modern-day Judaism, most of it is actually based on this thing called the Talmud. The Talmud is a commentary on the oral law. So you have this oral law that was passed down from generation to generation, and then you have this commentary written over many hundred years. Now, you have to understand the Talmud is a redacted work. In other words, you know, you say you're you're writing and you write four pages. I come along, I take your four pages, I summarize it to three pages, and I write ten pages because I'm like this verbose kind of guy. Melissa comes along and looks at your pages and says, that's pretty good stuff. So she leaves that alone, looks at my ten pages and says, yeah, we could put this into one paragraph. And then she writes three or four pages of her own. And And that's how this would be developed over time. The reason that becomes important is because when you look at the Talmud and their view of who God is, specifically when we look at who Jesus Christ is, much of the Talmud is reactionary to Christianity, keeping in mind that much of it was written over a, like a 700-year period of time that started 200 years before Christ, but there's 500 years after Christ that they're responding to Christianity. And so they are giving commentary, explaining a lot in trying to find answers to Christianity. So they're, they look in Old Testament passages that talk about false prophets being the son of a mother, and they'll say, see, that's a prophecy of Jesus. That's God knew that there would be a man that would come saying that he would be the Messiah. And so right. they try to argue that out of Deuteronomy 13.6 to say that was a God knew. What that this man would come saying that he was the son of a, a mother, and they'll say that's a, a, a prophecy that Jesus would be a false prophet. And so they would reject Jesus as a, as a prophet. Uh, they believe he was just a, possibly a good man. They believe God I'm is looking, um, absolutely one. Right. I'm looking on page 11 in the book, and it was talking how um, Judaism states that the virgin birth is a myth and that Jesus Christ is a false prophet, according to, to Deuteronomy 13.6 as well. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they would re, they would also reject, obviously, the, the virgin birth as well. Correct. Because a, a virgin birth would require a miracle. And the question there would be, if if a miracle occurred, 
why would God do a miracle off someone that they would say is a false prophet? Yeah. Right. And what really gets to be real interesting is their view of sin because they don't see it as a sin nature. They see it as an evil impulse. Um, and, and this becomes really important. You're going to see one of the things with each of these religions is there's the issue of sin has to be something where man has an absolute free will because ultimately they're going to base um, their view of salvation on man's works. And you know you get a go ahead I was going to say you know if you get a real clear view of of Judaism in in one of the uh sections of the Talmud it says this when t- speaking of sin I'm going to read a quote it says, "If a man sees that his evil impulse is gaining the mastery over him, let him go to a place where he is unknown." Put on black clothes and do what his heart desires. Let him not profane the name publicly, unquote. And name is is capitalized there. So in other words, if if you feel the need to sin, go somewhere where no one knows who you are and and dress up so no one will recognize you and go do whatever you want. Basically, just get into the sin. But don't, don't let anyone know that you're Jewish and don't let anyone know that you're you're who you are so that God doesn't get defamed. It is a very different view of sin than we as Christians would have, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, there's a, there's a fascinating debate that, that took place in the early 80s uh, between uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner and uh, Christian apologist Norm Geisler. And the topic mm-hmm. of that, that debate was why why did good things happen to or why do bad things happen to good people? And uh, it was based off of a book that uh, Harold Kushner wrote. And basically, he had, he had lost a son from a disease called progeria, which uh, basically makes the your, your kid it makes the body rapidly age. So, like a, a ten or eleven year old would look like a ninety year old man. It was just, it's a crazy disease. But anyway, uh, during that debate, um, it's, it's it's a fascinating debate. I would I would um, Recommend people get it. You can go to Impact Apologetics and uh, buy that buy that DVD for under twenty bucks. And it's it's a good two or three hour debate with uh, John Ankerberg hosting. But you really see the contrasting views uh, between the Orthodox Christian view of man, sin, uh, especially evil. Kushner was one of the first to push process uh, theology, or sometimes called open theism. Uh, basically where he argues in that book that God does not know the future uh, exhaustively. And uh, it, was, it was just a fascinating discussion. I, I'm curious, have you, have you got to see that before? or I, I have not. I uh, I had read parts of his book, um, but I haven't read it in entirety. Uh, basically, I think, I think the, that debate's really solved very easy. There are no bad things that happen to good people except for one, Jesus Christ. Um, right. He was a good man. Bad thing happened to him, but he chose it. The rest of the world is bad people suffering from bad things. The real question yeah. is, why would good things happen to bad people? Why would God give us good because we're not good? That's a good question. That's a, that's a 
That's a good question. Quickly, let's uh, let's hit the issue of salvation, and then let's uh, let's move on to some of the other ones. I think they're just, they're a little more yeah. mainstream in America. Um, so maybe yeah, you can we give us some pointers on how to evangelize. How how is in the Ju- in Judaism? How is man made right with God? It's it's going to be what they're going to call doing Torah. Do, following the law, being obedient to the law, there's 614 commands and you have to obey them. And so what you end up seeing is it is a very, very works righteous legalistic system. You have rules that you must keep and it is your salvation is going to be based on your law keeping. Um, and this is going to be something you're going to see with all every single world religion except Christianity is going to have that same thing you're going to see two components. You're going to see an absolute free will, in other words, that man is not, does not have a sin nature, but can freely and of himself choose to do righteous things or unrighteous things. And the, the reason that becomes important is because they need that for the, the real key issue of righteous works. Man can choose to do righteous works and earn his way to heaven. Every religion will teach that. That's why I say there's two religions in the entire world, the religion of human effort and the religion of divine effort. And Christianity is the only one that trusts in God's work and not man's work. And that's what sets it apart from every religion. That was the the big takeaway I had from studying these religions was that one point, that every religion teaches a works-righteous system except for Christianity. That's right. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. One of the great, great hands. Even, even right, Catholicism, which yeah, Catholicism, yeah, which is, is the next one, is people would say, well, Catholicism teaches salvation by faith. The difference is, and that the reformers brought out was, it's not faith alone; it's faith plus works. And so, if you add anything to faith, if you add anything to grace, you really don't have salvation by grace through faith. You have Ultimately, that final thing in, in Roman Catholicism, and gonna, there's going to be a lot of similarities in, in areas. Roman Catholicism is going to have a belief in the Old and New Testament. However, they're going to have some extra books to the New Testament that were added in in the 1500s. They're going to have as an authority the church magistrates are going to be an authority. Tradition is going to be an authority. And so that's going to be where there's going to be a difference between Christianity and what we say is Roman Catholicism. Now, I understand hey, I'm hey, making and, distinctions. Hey, hey, just, uh, just, I'm just going to, going to jump in real quick. Uh, there's a lot of things um, that we would say we would agree with, right? I think it was R.C. Sproul had, had said in, a, in his book or his lecture series that Protestants and Roman Catholics share about 98% of uh, the same same thing, but it's that 2% that is very critical uh, that, that separates <laughs> us. So uh, there's a lot of things, though. For example, the doctrine of the Trinity, the reliability and infer- infallibility of the Bible, um, of course, the uh, hypostatic union, etc. Um, so there, there is some common ground, I guess, we can have with our with our Roman Catholic friends? Yeah, I would. there's some common ground. 
they have a proper view of the Trinity. They have a, a proper view of who Christ is. They have an improper view of who Mary is. Uh, they basically make her as a co-redemptress. Um, they, they basically give her the authority that is really to, to Jesus. Um, they have a wrong view of salvation, which is the key one. Um, they have a wrong view of the church, the function of the church, and the authority of the church. But there is a lot of the major doctrines where there, there is some, some correct teachings that they have. Um, where it does become a thing is that they, if you think back to the reformers, they had an issue saying, hey, look, you can't say people can interpret the Bible on their own. They need the church to be the only one to, to give the proper interpretation because if, if people interpret on their own, you're going to have everyone having differing views. And, you know, when your your last interview with Greg Walker, he brought that up. He, you know, he says, problem is we have all these different denominations and people are fighting with one another. And there's some things that we need to just put those things aside and move forward. Well, the Catholic Church was right in that sense, that if you allow for private interpretation, um, you're going to get a lot of different people differing beliefs and, and divisions over these differing things, as, as, you know, Mr. Walker brought up. But I would rather have that and have a right view of salvation, the major thing, than have a pri- than not have a private interpretation, have everyone agree, but miss the major doctrines that are essential to salvation. Yeah, that is that is good stuff, and uh, their view of um, purgatory. Talk about that for a second. Uh, yeah. So actually, the doctrine of purgatory is one of the reasons the apocrypha books had to uh, had to you know get canonized in you know in you know Carthus because this was found only in one book in Maccabees. The idea here, you know, if you ever want to see whether Roman Catholics believe in a works-based salvation, you look to the doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory is a place that they believe after a person dies, they go to to work off their sin. So you go to this place until you've you've been purged of all the punishment for your sin that you did on earth, and when you're done work, working that off, then you can go to heaven. Even the Pope has to spend ten days in purgatory. So even even their their highest authority would have to be in purgatory for ten days. And so what you have there is the ultimate proof that they have a works based system, because they have to go to purgatory to work off the sin that they've committed. Interesting. So that's, I know that's a big, uh, kind of a big sticking point. Um, I think you, you touched on it a little bit, but uh, the Roman Catholic view of Mary. And I know, I know some Catholics esteem uh, Mary to uh, a point that other Catholics would feel very uncomfortable with. So for example, in Mexico or some of these other, you have like the Mary cult, et cetera, the breakout, they kind of, um, in, in America or just kind of American Roman Catholicism, uh, what kind of, what's the, the main views of Mary and kind of contrast that maybe with, uh, Protestants would view Mary. Yeah. And, and let's deal with what most would agree. You know, Mary, in, in, when you look in Catholicism, uh, people talk about the Immaculate Conception. And, and people think 
wrongly that that's speaking of Jesus, and it's not. The Immaculate Conception is talking about Mary and how she was conceived. And the reason that doctrine becomes important is because this is the argument they make. For Mary to be able to give birth to a sinless being, Mary herself had to be sinless. But if you think about that, the simple question to ask is, what about Mary's mother? Because if if Mary was sinless, then her mother had to be sinless. And that's where they say, ah, the immaculate conception. So the question is, why would this immaculate conception have to start with Mary and not Jesus? Jesus is the one without a human father. Romans 5, 12 to the rest of that chapter, talk about the fact that sin passes on from the father to the son, from Adam to his children. So if the sin nature is passed on from father to child, that is a real clear reason why Jesus didn't have a human father. He didn't have that sin nature then. That's where why Jesus has this special birth, not Mary. And so the way you see them talk about Mary as, as the mother of God, and in the early church, to be fair, that was a title for Mary, but not in the sense of highlighting Mary, but Jesus. In other words, when they called Mary mother of God, what they were saying was that she gave birth to deity, not that she was great, but that Jesus was great. The emphasis in the first century was on Jesus when they called her that. But today they call her mother of God, raising her up, saying, you can't go to Jesus directly. You need to mediate through people. And Jesus can't refuse his mother because he's got to always honor his mother. So you go to Mary, and through Mary, Jesus will always listen to your prayers. But Paul says that we have no mediator between God and man except the man, Christ Jesus. We don't need to go through Mary to mediate, according to the scriptures. We can go right to God through Jesus Christ because he's God. And he's the mediator. And so this is areas we we would see uh, major differences with Mary. Okay, that's good. Um, Probably... Move on real quick. Let me let me uh, let me bring this up real quick before we move on to the next uh, section here. Um, one of the big differences also is is uh, the the formal um, cause of the Reformation, Sola Scriptura. Doctor White brings out Doctor James White, Alpha and Omega Ministries. I know you you know who he is, but others um, may want to check his website. Uh, he's done a lot of really good things with with uh, Roman Catholicism, but he talks how, um, you know, we get criticized with the Sola Scriptura, but Roman Catholicism really seems to be kind of Sola Ecclesia, right? It's kind of the church that gives us the scriptures. The church is the one that determines what books go in the scriptures. The church is what supposedly interprets the scriptures. So talk about that for a second. Yeah, I mean, that's a very accurate description because they falsely argue that the church gave us the scriptures. But that's not true. The church council, where they met to discuss the scriptures that everyone talks about, was not to discuss the scriptures that we have for the most part, but there were a bunch of other books that some people saw as scripture and others did not. 
And that was the issue of debate. Were these other books scripture? And we have very early on lists of, of the books of the Bible long before the council, you know, in three hundreds where they dis- supposedly decided the scriptures. People knew as early as Peter, Paul's writings, scripture. So at the time that they were written, they were recognized as scripture. And so the church lifts itself up and gives itself the authority to say we are the only ones that can provide the scripture. We're the only ones that can interpret the scripture. We're, no one else has the right to do that. That's a controlling mechanism that was used for many, many years politically. Uh, if you study the, the history of the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Empire and how they used the church to control emperors because, because they had the control of telling an emperor whether he can go to heaven or not. And so there was this heavy emphasis on the church being the one that does the saving. And, and I, I give some passages that deal with that because they, they lift the church up as actually having the, the right to be able to determine or to provide grace that would be necessary for salvation. And so it is you're, you're emboldened to the church you're, to be saved, not, not so much Christ. Christ is actually right. belittled. Christ is put behind Mary. Christ is put behind the church. You can't get to him. You have to go through all, through all these other means to get to salvation. Well, you, you have, a, like I say, a, a fairly large chapter on that. So I would, um, you know, for people who are wanting to uh, do more, I uh, would definitely uh, suggest that book. And let me give the number for people maybe who are wanting to call in. Uh, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. would love to have anybody that would like to call in and uh, and talk about this. Again, uh, we're going over Andrew Rappaport books, my guest, uh, What Do They Believe? And it's called A Systematic Theology of Major Western Religions. So, so far we have uh, done... Judaism, we have looked at uh, Roman Catholicism. Next, we are going to look at Islam. So what we're going to do is take a quick, uh, uh, actually, no, that's, yeah, please, I don't think we have time for for a commercial break. Uh, we're just running out of time because of all of our technical difficulties. But uh, please call in if you have questions, and we will get you online with Andrew. So, the third uh, thing you have here listed, Andrew, in the book is Islam. Talk to us a little bit maybe about the uh, the origins, uh, kind of the different beliefs. Take Let's take six or seven minutes on this. And uh, between 7.40 on, I'd like to spend the last 20 minutes with the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. I think just because that's, in America, that's we're, we're going to have a good chance of running in to, into them. So... Talk to us a little bit about Islam, brother. Yeah, Islam is, is the one that gets the most interest nowadays, and actually Islam is the one that you're going to run into the most uh, in America coming up. Uh, Islam is, is taking over literally the world, uh, 
And it is the idea, and one of the things you have to understand with, within Islam is it, the word itself uh, comes from a word that means to submit. So to be a Muslim is to be one who submits. Uh, Muhammad was uh, was a man uh, born in 570. He was uh, enslaved to a woman who was a trader, um, meaning that she did trading with, with uh, different people, would travel in caravans. He was uh, one of her slaves, and he eventually married her. And this is where it does get to be interesting because he had a, a vision, and he believed that it was a angel, an, an, an angel, a demon, that was possessing him and, and giving him these visions. Um, he went and talked to his wife about it, and she said, no, 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 this is from God, which immediately actually kind of puts people in a, if they think about this, this is a, a hard thing because in Islam, you see a woman's testimony doesn't count as much as a man's. You need four women's testimony to count equal to one man's. So you have a dilemma, actually. See, I agree with Muhammad that I do believe it was a demon that was uh, speaking to him. So the, the problem in Islam is if he listened to his wife, whose testimony was greater, his or his wife's? Well, he submitted himself to his wife in believing what she said over what he thought. So either he was right and it was a demon or he was wrong in submitting to his wife according to his, his teachings. I don't know. But basically what you end up having is in Islam, the Quran is their authority. Um, now, they believe that God spoke at least four different times. They believe that God spoke through Moses, but then men corrupted that. And, and God spoke through David, but then men corrupted that. God spoke through Jesus, and then men corrupted that. But they believe that God spoke to Muhammad and the writing of the Quran, and that's perfected. Now, right off the bat, you'd say, well, wait, God doesn't have a good, very good track record if the other three times, man were able, was able to corrupt what God did. In the Quran, it says that if you don't understand the Quran, go to the people of the book, meaning Jews and Christians. Trust the book, meaning the Bible. Let the book tell you. It says in that, the, speaking of the Bible, that God's word cannot change. Now, they have a problem because if the Bible cannot change... And then they also say it does change, then all of a sudden there's a problem because they have a, they have a contradiction. And that's one way we would know that the, that the Quran was not written by God because it says the Bible can't change, and then they say the Bible was corrupted. Here's an interesting historical note as well. When they say that the, these, they talk about this corruption that occurred in the other books, the, the writings of Moses and David and Jesus, and Jesus didn't rightly understand, but that's what their view is. When they look at that, we know that the third caliph after Muhammad, uh, 18 years after Muhammad died, they started to write down the Quran. The Quran was not, it was an oral tradition. It wasn't written. It started to be written. And the third caliph, Caliph Amra, had collected, put an, an edict to collect all of the written copies and he had an edict to burn the abhorrent texts. This becomes important because the, the Muslims will say that the Quran has never changed. But if it never changed, why did this caliph have to say that there were certain copies that had to be burned? Because they weren't right. How do we know he burned the right ones? 
How do we know wow. if God was allowing the, his word to be corrupted every other time? How do we know this guy didn't corrupt it? That's a moral, a logical dilemma that Muslims will have if they're going to be honest. And they also have another dilemma. When it comes to the view of the Trinity, when we talk about who the Trinity is in Islam, they believe purely in a monotheistic. God is one person, one God. And yet, when you read in the Quran, in Surah chapter 5 and 6, and it starts explaining the Trinity, okay, it is going to ask the question of Mary saying this in in Surah 5.16, O Jesus, Son of Mary, did we say unto men, worship me and my mother as gods? Their view of the Trinity is the Father, the Mother, and the Son. They think we worship Mary as God. And even in Catholicism, which puts Mary on a high pedestal, will not say Mary is God. And yeah, so let me define... can, can, real, real quick question about that, uh, Andrew. Uh, one of the arguments that I've heard um, that would cause a lot of problems with Islam is that, you know, as you say, Islam starts, you know, mom is born, what, 80, 570, and everything kind of kicks off around 610 A.D. Um, so you have, you know, the, the confessions and the creeds long before Islam really gets going. And so mm-hmm. if if the Quran is a divinely inspired book, right, even if they do not believe in the Trinity, how do they – they, they mess up the doctrine, though. It's supposed to be divinely inspired by God, and yet they don't get the the, the doctrine that Christians believe correct. Regardless if they well, believe the Trinity is true or not, they, they you know it's not even represented correctly, and yet the book is supposed to be from God. Well, there's a good reason for that, and that shows where there's a contradiction. It's an error in in category. It's a wrong definition of the Trinity. But the reason it is, is we have to understand the Quran was developed over, over a period of time of Muhammad's life. In the early run, the Quran is not put together chronologically like the Bible is, sort of, but it's put together by size, so the larger chapters first. And so what you end up having is, uh, because of that, you can't figure out the chronology. In the books, when you read the Quran chronologically in the way they were written, the early books are very favorable to Judaism and Christianity. But when the Jews rejected Muhammad as a prophet, that is when it changed. And so the only, in the area that Muhammad was, the influence of Christianity that he had were those that were the heretics thrown out of the Roman Empire. That's why his view of Christianity is based on heresies. People who were because of their heresies, because of the councils, were kicked out of the empire. That's who he came in contact with. He didn't come in contact with Orthodox Christians. He came in contact with heretics. Right. I think that's a, that's a good point. I just I think it's I think it just it's it strongly speaks to the um, you know the fact that it's it's really not. Uh, 
It's really not the word of God. But like you say, um, they respect a lot of the Old Testament prophets, of course, claim Jesus is a prophet. What is the view of Jesus' death on the cross, right? So I know that they will say it was an imposter that died, but I've also heard, you know, like when when William Lane Craig or James White uh, does some debates, like with Shabir Ali, uh, he's probably the, uh, one of the most preeminent uh, Islamic followers today. Well, they'll try and say, "Well, the Quran doesn't really say that, etc." Is there is there a pretty is there a solid position within Islam that most people would hold to as far as uh, the resurrection? Like, did Jesus die on the cross? Was it an imposter, uh, etc.? Well, here's where you have the dilemma because they there's two source two major sources in Islam. You have the Quran. And you have the Hadith. And the Hadith will be different between the Shia and the Sunni. And so that's where the differences are going to come in. But the general okay. assumption is that Jesus Christ had many miracles in his life. He was born of a virgin. Um, the, the, one of the ironies, by the way, is that the only way to guarantee that you are going to, to the lake of fire, the hell, right, is to believe in the Trinity. That is the only thing that guarantees you can never be forgiven of by God. Allah has no mercy if you believe in the Trinity. But what you end up seeing with that is that if, and this is a question to ask Muslims, you ask them, did God put a lookalike, and some think it was Judas, on that cross to die? And the reason they believe this is because they believe that a prophet cannot die. On a cross, a, a, a prophet can't be like that. Why they they, you know, they have a lot of different views with the prophets, where they try to ignore the sin that they've that they do. But a prophet can't die in a crucifixion, and therefore it had to be a lookalike. But what does that say about the character of the God of Islam? He's a deceiver. Right. He deceived people into thinking this yeah. is Jesus. So, so what right. do you have? You have a God who says he's going to give his word, but he's going to allow man to corrupt it. He's going to deceive them into believing that his prophet is on a cross when it really isn't. It, how could you trust the Quran in any way when you have a God that's character is one of deception, and actually there's a verse in the Quran that says he is the master deceiver? How could you trust then a master deceiver when he says he's going to give you his word, and after Muhammad, it's not going to change, but every other time, it was corrupted. How could you possibly right. trust that? I think mean, that's, that's, that's an excellent point. When you get in an airplane that has a 75% chance of, of crashing, <laughs> you know, no, you're not going to trust an airplane that has a 75% chance of crashing. And that's the best that they offer to the to the Quran's accuracy. Right. That, right. That's the one time it was right. That's good. That is very good. Folks, uh phone lines are open for another twenty minutes. Seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven. Seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven. I want to move now on to the last two uh not so much religions as they are cults. Um, which is just they kind of deny one or more of the 
essentials of Orthodox Christianity, and of course, both of these, I believe, deny every single one of them. Um, so these are these are the people that we're going to have a pretty good chance you are going to encounter these. It's it's so funny, Andrew, on on the um, campus that we're on, Winthrop University. It is a very very secular campus. I mean, it is. It, many people that I've talked to said it is. It's far more more uh, liberal than Clemson, and probably the most liberal campus in the Carolinas. A very large percentage of agnostics, atheists, etc. So it's so funny because we have this. You know, you have the the liberals and then atheists, uh, but then you also have ministries that are very conservative, like a. Uh, one comes from a Bob Jones kind of a university and background. But the funny thing is, is the last several semesters, we have seen Mormons on Winthrop University, and they're meeting with students, and they're they're trying to do, you know, evangelism, et cetera. Uh, it's just such a, such a fun experience. You know, you go to the campus, and you just see all kinds of different views and beliefs. And so... Uh, in fact, we had a Mormon student who was who was coming faithfully to our Ratio Christi meetings, and uh, was able to have <laughs> some very good discussions with him as well. Uh, and I don't know if you know, but I actually grew up uh, in a Mormon house. I lived in Utah for 23 years, and my parents came out of Mormonism when I was probably five, and that. So uh, I've got a heart for Mormons. I've got cousins who are still Mormons, and uh, I love love the people, but. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, so you mentioned a cult, and one of the things that's in the introduction of the book is a definition of a cult, because it's important to know how, do you, how can you identify what a cult is. And, and real quick, there's five things that I say as a definition of a cult. One is they're going to twist Scripture. They're going to take Scripture, and they're going to twist it to give it new meanings. There's going to be an authoritarianism. You're going to see either an individual or an organization that's going to act as the ultimate authority for your life and practice. You, you don't have a say, but they have a say. They're the ones that dictate for you. Uh, you're going to see an exclusivism. If you're outside of this group, you can't be saved. Um, right. You're going to see an isolationism, that you have to stay within the group. You're going to see that many of the people, everything they do their whole life is in the group. And then you're going to see an endangerment. And much of the endangerment with both Jehovah Witness and Mormonism or what Latter-day Saints are, is going to be from that if you leave that group, you're off from everyone. And that's hard for a lot of people. And so they, they will not leave only for the fear of, the, of being cut off. And you have to understand that their whole life is living in a small community of people that believe in, you know, Latter-day Saints. Now, if you are talking to someone, if you're on campus, a good question to ask is you ask them, are you a Mormon? Why ask that? The reason for asking that is because the Latter-day Saints have gone through a change in the last, say, 15 years where they are getting away from the name Mormon and calling themselves Latter-day Saints. And if you're talking to someone that doesn't take the label of Mormon but takes the label of Latter-day Saint, chances are they're not going to tell you what they honestly believe. And the reason for that is they're going to use Christian language to sound more Christian 
but they have a different understanding of it. And you can't just trust when they say they agree with a definition that that's exactly what they mean because they have different definitions, but they're going to use the words that Christians would use. And you've been maybe seeing the commercials. I, we are Christian. I am a Christian. And it's right. Yeah. They're yep. trying very, very hard to make it seem that they are Christian. Now, the irony of that is Joseph Smith founded this group by saying that the church had fallen away, that Christianity needed to be restored, and that's why they came up as the Latter-day Saints, restoring the church. So the church fell away, which Jesus said it can't, but it fell away, and they're restoring it. Now, if you think about that, that's the irony, because now they want to be the Christian church that they say they had to restore. So if they're trying to be like the Christian church that fell away, what does that say about them, right? So that's the history of it. Joseph Smith, you have to understand, was a con artist. He he believed that he, he told people that he had these found these golden plates. He has about eight different stories, eight different accounts that they had to try to reconcile together to explain because he had told the story different ways. And he told the accounts of, of three different times of life where God came to him and, and one, at one point gave him these golden tablets, which are the Book of Mormon. The idea that Jesus Christ, after he was resurrected, came to the United States, uh, to North America, evangelized to the Indians. Um, one of the things, if you read the Book of Mormon, and you do, if you're an engineer like me, you run numbers, and you actually discover that one of the ways you know that the Book of Mormon can't possibly be true is that the, the rate in which people were dying in the wars that are described is greater than any possible birth rate at that time. You, you can't have enough people to, being born to account for number, the sheer numbers of people that died. But when you, when you look at how they describe things, they, they believe that God was, is a physical being who had physical planets, was born on a planet called Kolob, and some will contest that because this is found in a, in a book called Mormon Doctrine. But Mormon Doctrine is written by their, by their president. They're, they're, you know, they're the one who speaks for the organization. Uh, but they would right. believe that they would believe that that God had physical parents, that Jesus Christ had physical parents, Jesus Christ was born on a planet, that you as a human being, if you're a good Mormon, could actually become God, and you can have your own planet tool, and God the Father is was once a man became God, and he now has a planet Earth that he can rule. And we are his spirit children that we too could be like him. And this is this speaks directly against Scripture. Because what Scripture says is that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. How could Jesus Christ create his parents and his grandparents and the planet that he was born on before his parents were born. It, it smacks right in the face of, of everything we know about God. 
Absolutely. They believe that, that Satan was Jesus' spirit brother. Yep. I think I think they one of the things to... that you hit hit on that was very important is the language. It sounds like Christian language. We, you know, I mm-hmm. remember receiving a call from my brother a few years ago, and he called me on the phone, and he says, you know, Devin, I, I don't understand. Why do we not consider, and he works in Salt Lake City, he says, you know, why don't we consider Mormons our brothers and sisters? They love Jesus. They believe in God. They believe the Bible. They believe Jesus died for our sins. Why are they not our brothers? And, I, you know, I had to explain to him, well, because... It's a different Jesus. It's a different gospel. It's a different God. They use the same language, uh, but it's 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 very. I'll say this. I think the higher ups are very deceptive. I don't think the average Mormon. I don't think the average Mormon even has a clue really what all they believe. Um, no, I don't but, think they. I don't think they're aware of it. Like like Roman Catholics, they're, they're not aware of it. And you know how you answer that? Why don't you accept them as Christian? Because they t- their documents say that we're corrupted. The, mm. the Latter-day Saints said that we fell away, the church fell away, and they needed to restore it. That they're the only ones with the truth, and we don't have the truth. They said that we weren't Christian, but now they want to be like us. Same thing with the Roman Catholic Church. They anathematized anyone that would believe in, in salvation by grace alone. But now they want to say, hey, we're, we're the same. How can we be the same? You said we're cursed to go to hell. You know, and right. you can That's see in, in Mormonism a change of their doctrine. You know, one that you'll be, you know, you'll be familiar with is right. So they believe that Jesus Christ and his brother Lucifer fought over who would have the right over the earth. Lucifer lost, and because all the spirits that sided with Lucifer were sent to earth as black people sided with Jesus, white people. And those that were in between and didn't take a side were the, the red and yellow people. This is what Mormon doctrine teaches and has taught for many years up until recently. You could not be a, a priest in Mormonism if you were black. But that changed. A document, a Book of Mormon that's, that's the most perfect book, and yet it could change. To, to fit with culture. Well, folks, there could be a lot more said about Mormonism. I would, I would, we're, we're just barely. We're probably gonna have to schedule a time to get you back, uh, Andrew. <laughs> we're just being able to barely touch on some of these, and unfortunately, I was having issues with our technical support. So we've got about seven minutes. So take five of those seven minutes. Walk us through the Jehovah's Witnesses. All right, and and I mean, people can go to strivingforeternity.org and order the book and and read more. Yes, more and we'll details. put a link up on our Facebook page as as well. We'll 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 go ahead and I'll have Melissa uh, right now actually go ahead and put a link up for your book on our page. People can go there and get the book. So when you look at Jehovah's Witnesses, a great question to ask. When you, know, you brought up something early on, you don't talk about blood transfusions and all that stuff. Don't, don't talk about their false prophecies in 1975. I mean, what good is that stuff? You have a right approach, Evan. It, get to the heart of the issue. Who is God? How do you get saved? They, the first question that I ask a Jehovah's Witness, I'll ask them is, 
why did Jesus have to be God? And they go, excuse me, what? <laughs> we don't believe Jesus is God. And just like we were talking with, with Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses are going through that same transformation. They have redone their website, and they have removed from their most recent website all of the information that distinguished them from Christianity. They, like Mormons, are starting to use the same deceptive tactic on their website. They're taking things down, and they're trying to sound more Christian. They do not believe that Jesus is God, go. And this is essential. They don't believe in a hell. They believe that Jesus Christ was Michael the archangel who became a man and died on a stick, not a cross, on a stake, and he became an angel again. He didn't bodily raise from the dead. This becomes important because the fact that they remove hell, they remove the eternal punishment. If they remove the eternal punishment, what is the purpose for Jesus having to die? See, in Christianity, Jesus being an eternal being, can pay an eternal fine. In Jehovah's Witness, you don't have an eternal fine, so you no longer need an eternal being. So the question is, why did Jesus even have to die? He, he didn't need to be a sacrifice. And that's the thing. They have totally twisted who Jesus is. They have taken the Trinity and turned it in, as you said, I've asked, Every time I ask Jehovah's Witnesses, can you define the Trinity? They say three gods and one God. And you and I know that's not accurate. And so when we talk to them, we're going to know they don't have a right view of Christianity. But they're going to believe that in what the Watchtower tells them, and the Watchtower is their authority. And right. the Watchtower, even though it's been proven wrong, they've made predictions that have you know, failed and faltered, they still will trust it. They believe that there will be 144,000 people that will be saved and, and uh, the rest will go to earth. So only 144,000 go to heaven and the rest will be here on earth uh, in a new heaven uh, or in a new earth. And they believe that when they look at that, their job is to go out and they get saved by going out and telling others to, buy, to to get the Watchtower uh, materials and talk, talking to them mm -hmm. about becoming a Jehovah's Witness. And that's why they're so prevalent going door to door, because their salvation base is based on knocking yeah. on your door. That, that's, that's the thing, you know. It's, it's, and I'm not, you know, you can't judge people's motivations. Um, it's not that they don't love people or, or whatever, but uh, with the Christian, you know, we're really motivated because we love people. And we want to tell them about the things of God. Uh, with Jehovah's Witnesses, it really is their salvation kind of is on the line with that. But with that, with that said, Andrew, I hate to do this, buddy, but uh, we have to we have to end the show, my friend. Uh, it's been a, <laughs> well, thank been you for having me. You know? It's always a privilege and honor to talk with you and spend time with you. I really enjoy it. Yeah, well, you know, let's uh, let's work on getting you back sometime here in maybe fall. And I really appreciate your work. Give us your website again one more time, Greg. Sorry, Greg it is I'm striving, strivingforeternity.org. It's all spelled out. On there you can find out about our Spreading the Fire events in Jersey Fire, Ohio Fire, and NorCal Fire. You can find out about our uh, Striving for Eternity Academy. Uh, you could buy the uh, the book, What Do They Believe? 
And you can also, you know, contact us about our seminars, Bible Interpretation Made Easy. It's all right there. Are you available to do uh, interviews with other other people maybe wanting you on the show? Yeah, yeah. That'd be great. All right, wonderful. All right, uh, Andrew, appreciate you. The book is called What Do They Believe? A Systematic Theology of Major Western Religions. You can go onto our website, uh, our, our Facebook page, and you can see the link for the book, link for the show, and link for his ministry. Appreciate everybody joining us. Next week we'll have my friend Adam Johnson on. And we are going to be looking at the apologetic method and system of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer. We've looked at C.S. Lewis, uh, and we've looked at uh, a few other great thinkers. And next week I'm, I'm really excited to do uh, kind of look into some of the, the method and that of Francis Schaefer. So for Devin and Melissa, we just want to thank everybody for coming and listening. Share on your Facebook page, and we look forward to joining you guys next week. God bless. God bless. Have a good evening. <laughs>